Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three biracial, bilingual, bicultural children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. Some people call me a cultural critic or a pop culture pundit. I call myself a diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here for another fascinating conversation that meets at the intersection of race and real life. Melting Pot community, have you ever thought about packing up your family and moving abroad? Have you ever thought about starting a business abroad or returning to school to follow your passions, even if that school would require you to, you guessed it, move abroad? My guest today, Karen M. Ricks, has done all of that and more with her mixed-race family. She currently lives in Albania with her husband and son and is the founder and head chef of an online cooking school called Our Kitchen Classroom. Karen and her family have lived in eight different countries, including 10 years spent in Japan, where she and her husband founded an international Montessori school. When Karen isn't busy traveling, cooking, or teaching, she writes books and is currently working on a book about traditional Albanian cuisine. We're going to hear from Karen about what it's like to travel the world as an interracial family, how she's raising her son to be a global citizen, and why she's passionate about food, diversity, and education three of my favorite things. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Karen Ricks. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. Well, I have to tell everybody who's listening that this is actually the first time Karen and I have actually spoken, but I feel like we've been friends for a really long time. (laughs) Readers of the blog may have seen my profile of Karen. We're also in a bunch of Facebook groups together, and Karen is part of the My American Melting Pot community, so she's doing the reading challenge with us, I think. So I'm just really happy to have her here so I can actually talk to her and ask her all about her really exciting life and what it really means to live a multicultural life. So also, got to just add, Karen is our first person to call in from Albania. So so many firsts right now. Karen, I want to get started by just kind of beginning at the beginning of your life story. I know you were raised in San Diego, but can you tell everybody a little bit about what your perceived trajectory would have been like when you grew up? Well, as you said, Lori, I grew up in San Diego, California, and I was raised in a family of educators. So teaching was always one of those things that I expected I would do, but I never in a million years imagined that my teaching career would take on the global trajectory that it has, if you will. (laughs) Travel has always been something about which I'm passionate. That's definitely something that I can say my mother passed on to me without a doubt. My mother is also a world traveler and loves to hop off to this place or that place for beautiful vacations. In fact, it was my mother 
who influenced my desire to take a cruise. Because from some of the earliest childhood memories, I could remember her talking about cruising to different places and all of the amazing different places, a variety of places that one person could visit in a short period of time while experiencing the luxury of travel and only having to pack or unpack once as well as being surrounded by loads of good food. (laughs) Everything. Like, that's kind of like your life now, right? (laughs) Of being able to see all these different places and being surrounded by great food. So were you think, did you go to school to be a teacher? Did you have a kind of plan for your life, as we all sort of do, you know, in our early 20s kind of thing? Oh, goodness. I thought that I was really going to pursue something in politics or international relations. Growing up in San Diego, travel was not something new to me. We were a stone's throw from Mexico. And I remember traveling back and forth across the Mexican border before you needed a passport to do so. So it was something that was very close something that was very personal, something that was a regular weekly excursion for us. And so seeing U.S.-Mexican relations from a border town really influenced my desire to want to explore what I could to help the peace process and encourage peaceful international relations. But I thought when I was growing up, that that might be politics. And so I studied a lot of political science in school, but that was not where God was leading me at all. That's so interesting, but that makes a lot of sense. Also, you know, knowing what you're doing now and how you're living your life. So there's so many exciting things about your life. So I'm going to fast forward some things, but can you tell me how you met your husband and when did you get married? I met my husband in school, actually, in New York, and we got married shortly after his graduation in 2000. So where did you guys live? What was your first home together and what part of the country? We were living in Texas, actually, the first couple of years that we got married. And we moved from Texas to New Mexico shortly thereafter. So again, another border town. We are very close to the Mexican border there in El Paso. So from pictures, your husband looks like a white man. Is he white? Does he have a different ethnic background? My husband looks like a white man also, but he is Spanish. So before I just make that assumption, what ethnic background is your husband? My husband is a white male. He can trace family heritage through different parts of the United Kingdom, but... He is a white male, just like you look. He's a white guy. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so just out of curiosity, because this is a show where we talk a lot about interracial relationships and multicultural families, was there any problems with the two of you getting married? Were both families okay with it? Did you have to go through any unique challenges or anything with your union? No, not at all. Both of my parents actually were married divorced and remarried in interracial relationships. So my parents were perfectly okay with that. His parents had, in fact, relocated from Southern California back to the East Coast where they were living in the South. And so visiting and getting to know his parents for the first time was not problematic. But living and 
walking down the street in the South was not exactly the most comfortable situation, if you will. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. while we spent some time together in the South briefly before we got married, we had several long discussions about where we might like to live. And that was not a part of our plans in any way, shape or form. Where did you think you would end up living? Honestly, we both really enjoyed our early childhood in Southern California and thought we might possibly relocate there. I had spent some time in Oregon before we got married, and Portland was a very multicultural place, very welcoming. We probably, I guess, expected that we would spend a lot more time on the West Coast. Tell me then, Karen, (laughs) how does one get to Japan? Because if I'm not mistaken, that is the first international destination that you and your husband arrived to. Is that right? That is correct. We traveled a little bit internationally before Japan, but that was the first place that we lived internationally. And in all honesty, it took us years to get there. As I said, we started off our married life in Texas and moved to New Mexico. And after we'd been married for about three or four years, my husband first brought up the idea of wanting to teach abroad. And initially, I got excited about that idea. We had both lived in Southern California and studied Spanish growing up. My husband had even studied Portuguese. So I thought, okay, great. We can go to Mexico. We can travel further south through Central or even South America. We could go to Spain. We could go to Brazil. So many different places where we could use our Spanish or similar language skills. And my husband said, no, actually, I was thinking Japan. And when he first (laughs) brought that up, I literally laughed in his face. I thought that was crazy. And so we discussed it for a little while. And I kept suggesting lots of other places besides Japan because we didn't know anybody who had left the United States to go and teach in Japan or anywhere in Asia, anything like that. And we talked around it for a little while. And eventually that conversation just kind of faded away. And I thought, oh, it was just kind of a passing phase, something that he had forgotten about. And a few years later, he brought it up again. And this time we had a more serious discussion because, again, I suggested Spanish-speaking countries. He thought, no, I really wanted to go to Japan. Okay, well, maybe we could go to Europe, Spain, Italy, someplace else that we had visited before or had wanted to visit. No, he was really set on Japan. And when I pressed him, I said, why Japan? And all he could tell me was that that was what God had really put on his heart to do. And that was the point at which I stopped arguing and we started figuring out how we were going to move to Japan. Wow. Wow. So you didn't know anybody. You didn't speak the language, neither you nor your husband. So... What did you do when you got there? Did he have a job set up? Tell us how that proceeded then once you said, okay, we'll figure it out. Well, as he started exploring different options for travel to Japan, he was actually recruited to teach. So he ended up leaving with that school to go and teach a few months before I did. We had done exactly what we had said we weren't going to do, which was to move back to the South. We were living in South Carolina 
to be closer to his parents. And I was teaching in a Montessori school at that time. And so when I informed the director of the school that my husband was leaving for a year to go and teach in Japan and that I was going to follow him, she asked me to stay at least to help train the teacher who would be my replacement. And because we were only planning to go for a year, I was going to train up my replacement for a semester. That person would take over my classes, and then I was going to return back to my teaching position at that school. But one year turned into two years, turned into 10 years, and we <laughs> haven't looked back. So where, what city were you in in Japan? We were in Nagano Prefecture in the city of Matsumoto. So there's so many questions I want to ask, but I'm going to try to be specific and not overwhelm you. But first of all, what was it like to be an interracial couple in Japan? For starters, I think the time that we spent in Japan really helped me and my husband to grow a lot closer together as a couple, in part because it was the first time that my husband as a white male really stood out as being very obviously in the minority. So it was an experience that we could both not just share together at the same time, but that also gave him a greater perspective on what the rest of my life had been in the United States. And so we were really growing together in the unity of our separateness, our differentness, because we were so very obviously not Japanese. But I think right. was, I didn't think about it that way. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's it's a really unusual thing, I think, especially for a lot of American white people to find themselves in the minority. And so living for a decade in Japan where you are very clearly not Japanese puts you in the obvious minority. And so we were very united in our minority status. But what was also really funny for me was that because we weren't in a big city like Tokyo, we were in a more rural area, there were a lot of people that we met who had never seen a black person before, not in person anyway. And so I obviously got a a lot of extra attention for that, but a lot of people had never considered the concept of an interracial marriage. And so when people would see me and my husband together, they didn't usually assume that we were a couple. In fact, the longer we stayed and the better our Japanese language skills, more and more people assumed that we must have Japanese spouses. (laughs) In fact, there was a really funny incident This was before we opened our International Montessori School, but I was doing some teaching for ice skating, (laughs) and a reporter was interviewing me at the ice skating rink and was speaking to some of the skating students that I was teaching and accidentally misidentified one of the Japanese students as my spouse because it was someone with whom I was talking comfortably in English, and she was just surprised because she didn't know that there was any other person in the vicinity who could possibly be my spouse. (laughs) 
And that was the first time I think it happened that newspaper reported, but it wasn't the last. And in fact, it happened several times in newsprint and other interviews with people coming to visit our school after we opened it, that people assumed that my Japanese business partner, that even my Mexican business partner in the school, the other staff members, even other Japanese parents were my spouse and not my husband. Yes. That is so funny. But it just goes to show what people's assumptions will be. Like, how can I make it make sense in my own, through my own cultural lens? That's really funny. So you've said like three things that make me have to like go back. So we had ice skating, we had started an international school, and that you got so good at Japanese that people thought you must have a Japanese spouse. So let's take it back a little bit. First of all, tell us how you ended up starting a school in a foreign country. Please explain to us how that happened. Well, I had never had any intention of starting a school in Japan. Remember, we were originally just planning to go for a year for my husband to teach, and we were going back to the United States. But the school at which I had been teaching at the time was one that I had fallen in love with. And I had been talking with the director of that school about expanding the school's capacity in opening an infant and toddler class. Are you talking about the school back in the United States or the one that you were teaching? In the United States, yes. So I always had this idea because of the director of that school, actually. She had just wowed me with the story of the founding of her own school, which she had done with her sons on her back. And it had grown into this beautiful facility over generations. And by the time I was teaching there, one of her sons was a lead preschool teacher and another was teaching music at the school. And I thought, wow, what a fabulous thing to start this wonderful learning environment and continue to grow and expand the business as something that you could pass on to your children. And if it hadn't been for her planting the seed in my mind, I would never have considered what we ended up doing in Japan. But during the first few years that my husband and I were living there, he was teaching in private English language schools and working within the public schools. And I had formed a partnership with a Japanese friend and we were teaching mommy and me classes in little community centers around our town. And as the children started to grow up in these classes, they went from spending their days at home with mom and that being one of their fun weekly activities to going off to preschool or kindergarten. And the moms began to approach me and say, hey, I want my child to continue to study with you, but now he or she is going to school during the day. When are you going to start your own school so I can bring my child to you in the afternoons or for the daytime to just have regular preschool? And I kept saying, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that until I got pregnant with my own son. And then I was actually approached by a couple of other language school owners within our community. And I kept saying, no, now's not the time. I have to concentrate on, you know, having my own child. And shortly after my son was born was the massive Tohoku earthquakes and the tsunami in 2011. And it was a huge turning point, 
not just for us as a family, but for our whole decision-making process for continuing to live outside the United States. Because at that time, the disaster was so huge that so many foreign residents fled, returning to their passport countries. And my husband and I sat down and we took a long, hard look at the life that we had been building in Japan. And we decided that that was definitely something that we wanted to continue. So as literally tens of thousands of other foreign residents were leaving the country, we decided that we were going to make a very clear and bold statement to our community that not only were we not leaving, but we were going to open a school. That is so incredible. I mean, that's just such an amazing and powerful testament to you and your husband and wanting to stay. I'm just curious, what do you think it was that made you guys so determined to stay in Japan, especially given that your entire family is in another country, you are bringing new life into the world. Can you still talk on what was it that really spoke to you? Well, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon and something that I would never have considered possible before we actually left the United States and began our life as travelers. But we had really bonded with so many different members of the community that there were people that were friends, students that we had been teaching, that we had seen grow and develop, and we really just felt ourselves as part of the community. And we had made so many friends that were as close as family. And we had established a life and had built a new home. And so at that point in time, Japan was home for us. And after a natural disaster like that, when so many people are fleeing, the question is, are you staying or are you going home? And the statement that we were really making with the foundation of our school and our determination to stay was just the fact that we were home. What was your thinking about how you were going to parent your child in Japan? I think it's interesting because my husband and I, as I said, really grew a lot closer as a couple being minorities in Japan. And so the years that we had prior to our son's birth in establishing our identity as foreign nationals in this central Japanese town really helped to form the foundation for the sort of family into which we were inviting our son and for the school that we founded as well. We had so many close friends and families that we got to know because we were teaching within the community that were Japanese. We also had so many international friends, people from a variety of different countries around the world. And so we already had a lot of great examples of what it looked like to parent a child of a different race, a different background, using a different language at home than the community language. And what the establishment of our school did was to really help demonstrate not just to the families that came to participate and to learn 
together with us, but also to the community at large, that this was not some strange or isolated occurrence, but that there were lots of other families just like us within the community that wanted to raise multilingual, multicultural citizens. And that's exactly what we were doing. I could continue to ask you questions about Japan, but there's other things we have to get to. But I do want to just do a quick recap about the ice skating. We were teaching ice skating in Japan, which was obviously newsworthy enough that a newspaper reporter came to do a story on you. Can you give us a quick how are you teaching ice skating? Were you is this another secret talent of yours? I it is, yes. Skating was always one of those things that I wanted to do as a child. But my mother used to tease me that she didn't move to Southern California to spend her days in a freezing cold ice skating rink. So we went to the beach a lot when I was growing up. But when I was an adult, I went to school in New York and I'd moved away from home and I was making my own money and I bought ice skates and I studied on my own until I could find and pay for a coach. And I was passionate about ice skating right along with my Montessori teaching and training studies in the States. And I rose through my own personal testing as a figure skater, but even more so, I became more dedicated as a coach. And before leaving the United States to go and live in Japan, I had worked up to receiving a master rating from the Professional Skaters Association, which is the organization that uh, does testing and certifications for coaches that teach uh, Olympic figure skaters all over the world. Oh, my God, Karen, I love you even more. (laughs) So amazing. Wait a minute. Because audience, as you're listening to Karen tell you that she just figured out how to become a master skating instructor as an adult. But there's also more. You're also a professional singer. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Now, of course, I'm a journalist. So I Googled and I researched and I found a clip of you singing gospel music in Japanese, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Karen, tell us your other passion, in addition to (laughs) ice skating, that you are also a very accomplished singer. Can you give a little bit of a background on that as well? Well, singing is something that I feel like I've been doing for as long as I've been talking. And I was singing in church and on stages from the time I was three years old. By the time we left the United States, I had performed all over the country and in Mexico, too, as a featured soloist in a variety of concerts for sporting events, even for a couple of U.S. presidents. And yes, I, who are the, <laughs> I saw on your webpage that you sang, you have sung for two U.S. presidents. Who are the two presidents? For Clinton and mm-hmm. for Bush. Which Bush? Dad or kid? (laughs) Dad. Okay. Awesome. Go, Karen. That's amazing. So you continued to sing when you got to Japan. I did. And it wasn't something that I sought out, but a friend heard me singing and said, hey, you have to hear her and introduced me to somebody else who introduced me to somebody else who said, oh, well, you need to sing. We need to put on a concert. (laughs) So I ended up singing in church just like I had when I was a child. And word spread and popularity grew. And we ended up doing lots of different charity gospel concerts 
to raise awareness and funds for a variety of different charitable organizations around the world. So amazing. So amazing. Again, we should have booked you for like two episodes because there's just so much to talk about. And we still haven't even gotten to Albania yet. So you were teaching ice skating. You were singing. You started your own school. You started a family. You had a child. So it sounds like, again, that you were very deeply connected to this community. And and you obviously spoke Japanese by this time, too. How would Where would you put your Japanese language abilities by the time you left? Uh, That depends really on the topic of conversation. I like to joke with people that there were times when I sounded like an educated professional and there were times when I sounded like a three-year-old because I spent (laughs) so much time teaching and playing with young children. So again, so you were well entrenched in the community. You had a business there. You had a social life there. You had passions that you were pursuing. What made you leave? Well, you know, it's interesting because just like I never thought we would have enjoyed living in Japan so much that we would stay for a decade, by the time we got to that point, I couldn't imagine leaving either. And then the opportunity of a lifetime practically fell into my lap and I couldn't say no. Uh, We were on summer vacation from school and I was brand new to social media and a friend sent me a note saying, hey, check this out. Wouldn't that be really cool? And so I'm searching through her message and I clicked on a link to a website and here was this welcome to apply to cooking school in Italy. And I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't it be nice if someday, and I'm not sure what it was, Maybe it was just because I'd been up super late in the middle of a hot summer night. But my what if turned to, well, what would it take to make that happen? And so instead of just scrolling on by, I actually opened up my email and I dashed off a quick message. Uh, This is who I am. And I found out about your school and I would be curious to apply And that was it. And I hit send and I thought, oh, there are probably going to be millions of people who want to jump on this opportunity and, you know, probably nothing will ever come of it. And I kind of forgot about it for a couple of weeks. And then I received an invitation to an interview with the director of the cooking school. And then it became more real. And after the interview, I was invited to attend and to be a part of what was a very small cohort of this class was literally only a dozen people. And my husband and I talked about it. And just like this massive turning point that we had hit after the earthquake, where we thought we can't not take advantage of this opportunity to do something, we felt the same way again. And so we made a decision to leap. I'm going to pause you for just one second. So was cooking something like ice skating and music for you that was something that you'd always been passionate about? Or was this a new interest that you had developed while you were in Japan? Well, cooking is something that I have always been passionate about as well. And I've been cooking since I was a child myself. When I was just 
about six years old, I remember asking my mom how to cook some dish that she had made that I just loved. And my mom was a very practical teacher, but also a really busy woman and didn't have lots of time. And she pointed me in the direction of a stack of cookbooks that we had in our kitchen. She said, you know how to read, you know how to follow directions, go to town. (laughs) I love my mother for that. And I had the opportunity to play around with lots of different things in the kitchen as a young child. And I cooked for my younger siblings. And I have always, always loved good food. And I thought that that was just normal, that everybody did that. But when I arrived in Japan and when I started teaching, especially these mommy and me classes, but even in just getting to know more women and their young children and the way that they conducted their lives on a day-to-day basis, I was shocked by the number of mothers who did not allow their children into the kitchen at all. Now, some of them explained it away saying, well, you know, the Japanese home is small and the kitchen is very small and this is just my space. I need to do everything. But it was even would go so far as I knew women with children in junior high and high school who still made lunch for their children every day to go to school. And I thought, well, that was strange. You know, I was making my own lunch. I would think that they could make their own lunch too. And then I met more and more independent young people just starting out in their adult lives who did not know how to cook could barely boil water to make a cup of instant ramen. And I thought, well, no, this is crazy. And so I, I talked with more and more moms and they said it really just was not something that they were really comfortable allowing or teaching or including their children in that process. And so when we started our school at IA Matsumoto, We included cooking and snack preparation and lunch preparations in the regular curriculum. It was a part of what we did all the time with the children. And at first, many of the moms were very wary. They wondered, well, if you're spending all this time cooking lunch, then when is my child going to learn other things? And the more we did it and the more we cooked and the more we opened up cooking classes for the families and opened up cooking sessions prior to dinner events or community events as it continued to grow and get bigger and bigger, the more they began to realize that the cooking was a lesson in and of itself. And it was a way to interconnect the mathematics and the language and the history and the culture and the geography and all the different learning that was happening in our school. And so cooking was so integral a process in what we were doing every day in our school that it became one of the crucial things that set us apart so that after the first few years when another international school opened up in town, people would ask, well, is that the one where the children cook or is that the one where the lunch was delivered? So cooking became even more important to you after, I mean, it was already something you really enjoyed, but then it became, it took on a whole nother meaning and level because it became 
like an instrument or a tool for your education. Absolutely, it did. And especially because it was something that was so surprising in the cultural context of where we were, it was that much more dramatic a teaching tool. So it was not just the preschool children or the kindergartners or the elementary school children, but even in the adult classes, when we had special weekend events, we did a special sessions that I called books and baking, where we would read different children's stories and we would bake something together that was connected with the story. And then at the end of our baking session, while everybody was enjoying their treats, we would read the story together again. And everything took on whole new meaning for everybody who had an opportunity to participate in these special events. I love it. That sounds so great. So, okay, so get us now to the school in Italy. By then, you're just so fired up about cooking that you realize this is something you would want to pursue. But at the time when you were looking at going to culinary school, were you thinking, and then I'll come back to Japan? Honestly, I was not planning to go back to Japan. We sold everything to pick up our lives and start over in Italy. And when we left, there was the prospect for another cooking position that involved some teaching in Italy. And during the time that I was at the cooking school there, that particular opportunity fell through, but something else popped up. And it was as the cooking school was winding down and another opportunity opened in another country that my husband and I looked at each other and we realized, you know, we've picked up once to move from the United States to Japan. And that was huge. But we did it. And then we picked up again and we moved from Japan to Italy. And that was pretty major too, but it was easier. We looked at each other and we realized we could conceivably continue to do this indefinitely. And we looked at each other and we said, do you want to keep going? And we brought this idea to our son as well. And all three of us agreed that this was an exciting prospect and we wanted to keep going. And now, here it is, the beginning of 2020, and we have been going continuously for a little over three years now. So when you say going, are you going from job to job or just going like wherever the wanderlust takes you? Like what propels you to go from one country to the other at this point? It's really a matter of curiosity. I like to joke sometimes that I'm just eating my way around the world. (laughs) (laughs) But there are so many places that we have always wanted to visit. So it's a combination of our wanderlust, our curiosity, the friends that we are meeting in our travels and the places that people recommend to us. There are so many different possibilities and every one is an opening to another exciting chapter in this incredible adventure. So how long have you been in Albania and does this feel like a long-term settlement, like you're going to be there for a while or will it literally be until you feel like moving on? We have been in Albania now on and off for about a year and a half now. And I say on and off because as American passport holders, we have the option to stay in the country for 12 months. So we arrived from Italy out of 
mere curiosity and stayed for a year. And then we decided we were going to continue to explore the Balkans. And we moved through Greece during the summer of 2019 and explored a little bit of North Macedonia and realized we really missed Albania. And so we returned to Tirana, the capital city, back in September. So after that first year, we left and then we came back. And now we've been back for another five or six months, I guess it's been. (laughs) So we will continue to stay here for another five or six months. And then we will see where curiosity takes us again. So I know that your cooking career has now developed into your, not just a passion, but your career as a online chef. Can you talk about what Our Kitchen Classroom is? Sure. Well, I really feel like Our Kitchen Classroom started with the International Academy of Matsumoto in central Japan because it really and truly is an extension of the culinary lessons that we were teaching with the students and the families and our community in Japan. We've simply taken those lessons outside the four walls of the brick and mortar international school that we established. And now we have the opportunity to welcome students and families and cooks from all over the world and from all ages. So at our kitchen classroom, we teach and we learn and we continue to share all of the different excitement from our travels and the culinary lessons that we're learning in the process. And we do that through the different books that we're writing, through the cooking courses that we teach, both in person and online, and through the culinary and cultural tours that we share. Oh, wow. So it's a full-service enterprise. It's not just the lessons. It's not just the online lessons that you're offering. Exactly. In fact, coming to Albania has been an amazing boost to our business in person as well, because after more than three years of traveling full-time as a family, we've had the opportunity to connect with a lot of other traveling families. And so more and more of our clients, as they pass through Europe, are detouring to Albania so that they can come and meet us and cook together in person. Oh, how cool. That's so exciting. Which leads me to another question I have, because you are, I know, world schooling your son. Do you ever worry about, you know, how you are raising him in this global climate or global classroom, I should say? I don't worry about him at all. In fact, World schooling, which is a term that I got to know really much more after we started traveling full time as a family, is Mm -hmm. a term that I feel like I could even use to characterize my own education in my childhood, because my mother as a teacher saw learning as a way of life. And so it wasn't something that was confined to a school building or the school year, but everywhere we go and everyone we meet is another opportunity to learn. And so I'm excited about the process of world schooling. And I have to say, it's not just for my son, but it's a journey that we're on together as a family because literally everywhere we go and everyone we meet really and truly does provide a new opportunity for learning. And we're demonstrating that to our son in the way that we live each and every day. And I don't think that we could offer him a more rich 
educational opportunity than we are. And how old is your son right now? He is nine years old. Okay. So one of the other things I was wondering, and this is something that as a woman who's married to a European man, and, you know, we've talked about moving to Spain. And I always said, no, no, I could never raise my Black children in Spain because there's no representation. There's no positive representation of Blackness in Spain. There's a lot of ignorance. And even worse, there's a lot of mockery of Blackness. You know, there's a lot of Blackface and people dressing up as Black people for carnival and things like that. And so I thought that would never be a good place to raise Black children. How do you foster a positive sense of Black identity for your son when you're living in places that there really aren't like a significant Black population? Well, it's interesting because as a multiracial child, there are not as many places anywhere in the world, really, where he sees himself represented in the communities in which we've lived. We have spent some time in London, for example, which was probably one of the few cities around the world where we actually saw a lot more representation. Yeah, definitely. And we had a chance to go back and visit some of my family and friends in my hometown of San Diego, which is also a lot more multicultural. But I think just like you commented about how there isn't a lot of positive representation in Spain, there wasn't a lot of positive representation in Japan, where he was born and spent the first six years of his life. But... I, as his Black parent especially, feel it's my responsibility not only to model the sort of positive representation that I want him to see and want him to emulate, but to go even a step further and educate and create the sort of environment in which he can feel empowered to be himself and take pride in who he is and who he wants to become. And I feel like that's another really bold statement that we made with the establishment of the International Montessori School. And it's a statement that we make as a family everywhere we go in the world. There might not be a lot of families that look like us, whether it's people that look like me, people that look like my son, even people that look like my husband. And there certainly aren't necessarily a lot of families that look like us together, but we are certainly not the only ones. And so highlighting our story, the things that we do, and just meeting and making friends with people in our community is what creates that idea that who we are is not some strange oddity, (laughs) but we're really just a normal family like everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I really think now, I think I'm older and wiser. My kids are 18, 15, and eight. And I definitely feel differently now than I did when I was a younger mother about, you know, what is the best place to raise Black children? A lot of people will say it's not like there's a lot of positive energy around Black manhood in the United States either, right? Absolutely. Looking from the outside in, people often ask me if I'm crazy thinking that it would be better to raise Black children in the United States when don't they shoot Black men indiscriminately, the police, not other people, but the police themselves. So Exactly. um, Yeah, so I'm wondering, do you think ever that, I mean, do you think that you're raising your child and not just your child, but your your entire family, do you feel like you're 
providing a better life for him outside of the United States in terms of his sense of self and identity? Like what you said really struck me that you want him to feel that he can be himself. Do you think that being outside of the United States, that's easier to do? At this point, because we have been outside of the United States for most of the last 13 years, I really don't know that I compare it so much to life in the U.S. anymore as much as I see ourselves creating the life that we most want to live. It's not to say that we couldn't create this life in the United States, but we are blessed to have the freedom to create it in a variety of different places around the world. And it has provided so much rich cultural learning for all of us as a family that for us right now, that is the best life that we could provide. And we're excited to continue to do that. Before I let you go, do you have plans for a next place or like, do you know what's next for you and your family? Or is it really what, like you said, in six months, you'll figure it out? There are times when I feel like the list of places I want to go is growing so long. I'm going to have to live 200 lifetimes (laughs) to go everywhere. But At this particular point in time, actually, we're very excited to be able to make plans to connect with more world schooling families just like ours in Vietnam in the fall of 2020. That sounds so exciting. It is Um, very exciting. This is my final question. I do well, it's it's my penultimate question. So Do you think, Karen, that there's something unique about you and your husband that makes you suited for this life of travel that you've created for yourself? Or do you think that you just took that first step and it evolved? Because I know people are listening right now and some of them might be like so excited and think, oh my God, I could do that. Or "Mm, I don't think I could ever do that. What would you say? Is it something about your personality or, um, you know, something about your upbringing? Or again, was it just one step led to the next step led to the next step? I think it's a combination of all of those things, honestly, Lori. There are things about this life that we're leading now that I can honestly thank my parents for planting the seeds in my childhood, saying Yes, you can travel the world. Yes, you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do and go anywhere you want to go. But I think a lot of people would probably say that they received that sort of encouragement in childhood and maybe didn't necessarily have that followed up with the sort of living examples that encourage them to continue to pursue whatever passions those might be on into adulthood. And that's where I think the unique combination of my outgoing personality and variety of interests and my husband's dogged focus and pursuit of his passions has really combined to help provide us with not only the encouragement, but the positive feedback at every step along the way to continue urging us on this journey. And it's something that 
I really feel passionate about doing, especially for other families of color, because too often we feel like we don't see examples of people that look like us doing what we want to do. And so I really feel... I don't even want to call it a sense of obligation because it's really a joy and a privilege to share our story with other families because I want to encourage people who have this dream to travel, to provide their children, their families with an alternative education, to pursue their passions and create entrepreneurial success from something that they love. You can do all of those things. And that's really, I think, at the heart of what we're teaching in our kitchen classroom. The things that you have at your fingertips every day, the power of your imagination, that's what brings it all together into creating exactly what you want to enjoy, whether it's the dinner that you share with your family on the table tonight or the life that you create a decade from now. It's all possible. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much for saying that because I am so, so ready to take that leap and to do some kind of family travel. Hopefully everything goes as planned. We're supposed to be living in Spain next year for the year oh, with the family. Exciting. Totally knocking on wood. I already announced this. I'm like saying it like it's a secret. It's not a secret. I posted it on my blog. So. <laughs> it's not but, a secret. Um, I shout it from the rooftops. Yes, yes. But I think it's so important what you just said, especially for families of color, because people often don't see families that look like ours doing these things. You know, there's still kind of a stereotype of who flies off to another country to teach English and then start an an online business and meet up with other people in Vietnam. Like our faces aren't necessarily the faces of those experiences. And I'm so grateful that you are so transparent and visible with your sharing and encouraging other people to do the same. Um, Karen, can you please tell everybody how they can follow you? And I'm just going to make a warning. If you go on Karen's Instagram, you're going to be hungry. So just be prepared. (laughs) Just be totally prepared because this woman makes such delicious looking food. I mean, I stared at a plate of rice that just looks so delicious and then like lemon pancakes and I mean, just absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous creation. So tell everybody where they can follow you and where they could find our kitchen classroom. The best place to come and find us is on our website at ourkitchenclassroom.com. And from there, you can not only follow the blog and shop for books and courses and culinary tours, uh, but you can also find links to us on social media. I am on Facebook. Our business page is Our Kitchen Classroom, and we have a thriving online community where we play with your food. (laughs) And I'm on Instagram. You can search for the hashtag Our Kitchen Classroom, and we have a YouTube channel as well. So you can see some of our thoughts and travels and cooking lessons on our YouTube channel, also Our Kitchen Classroom. That's excellent. And of course, I'll have links to all of those on the website in in the show notes. So Karen, thank you so much for being with us today. And I know everybody, Karen's in Albania. It is 
late at night where she is. And I appreciate (laughs) you so much for speaking with us and inspiring us all today. Oh, well, I appreciate you and your amazing platform too, Lori. It's so wonderful to be able to connect with families just like yours. And I'm excited to have had this opportunity to finally talk to you and hear your voice. Yeah, you, you know, and I'm kind of sad that if you're going to be in Vietnam in the fall, I wasn't. Get, I was thinking I would swing over to Albania if we were in Spain, but I'm not swinging over to Vietnam from Spain. So, well, so we might know, have to continue our conversation just, you know, online. You say that now, but once you make that first leap, <laughs> I told you, the next one gets easier and easier. And before you know it, you're jet setting around the globe. I, you know, you're tempting, you're tempting. So <laughs> we'll see. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Lori. That lovely voice was actually Karen singing in Japanese during her time in Japan. Karen's story is so inspiring. I love hearing stories like hers, especially from people whose families look like mine. It's really true that sometimes we need to see other people living the lives we can only dream of, especially when those people look like us. I love Karen's philosophy on life, and her goal to educate people as she goes around on her travels. I love what she said about her parenting philosophy. I like how she's raising her mixed-race child to believe that he can be anything he wants to be and that her success with him would be that he feels confident in who he is and developing his own sense of self. And I love, of course, her passion about food and cooking and how you can use food and cooking to teach people about culture. You can also teach them about history and language, all of these different things. She's proving that with her work with Our Kitchen Classroom. I have to say, people, definitely check out her work, her books, her courses, even her recipes. They're all delicious and divine. I hope you are inspired by her story, Melting Pot community. Where would you go on an adventure with your family? Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really do help other people find the show because the more reviews and the higher the ratings, the more eyeballs get to see the show. But it's not just that. The reviews you all leave really keep me motivated to keep creating this content. And it lets me know which shows you really like. For example, a lovely woman named Lauren, left this comment in February. She wrote, Gracias. Thank you for this platform, for these conversations, particularly the one on being Black in Spain. First of all, that was my first bilingual review. And second of all, gracias a ti, Lauren. Now I know that someone really liked my Black in Spain series, and I feel all warm and fuzzy inside, and even more motivated to maybe revisit some of that content. So you too can send me a review like that. Maybe I'll read it here. Maybe I'll just read it at home, but it'll make me feel all warm and fuzzy. And again, you can tell me which stories you really liked and what stories you want to hear more of. And just a reminder, My American Melting Pot is coming out every week this season. So look for a new episode every Friday. 
And if you want more multicultural content, don't forget I publish new blog posts every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on the My American Melting Pot blog, as well as daily posts on all of the My American Melting Pot social accounts. Just visit MyAmericanMeltingPot.com for links to all the goodness. The My American Melting Pot podcast is recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. The show is produced by me, Lori Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Tyler McClure, Paul Marchesani, Joe Patty, and Nick Cruz. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you as always for listening, Melting Pot community. And remember to always live your life in color. (laughs) 